Good morning and welcome to Rural Queensland today. It's Tuesday morning, the 11th of July. You're with Ben Dobbin across rural and regional Queensland and a very good morning to everybody listening to us through 4SB in Kingaroy, 4ZR in Roma, good morning, 4VL in Charleville, 4HI in Emerald, 4LM Mount Isa, 4LG Longreach, 4GC Charters Towers and the Hot Country Network, good morning to you. If you've missed any of our previous shows, go to Spotify, Rural Queensland Today. It's great to be with you. Ben Dolben, Rural Queensland Today, across the Resonate Broadcast Network. David Littleproud will be joining us. This water buyback fiasco um, with the Murray-Darling Basin is going to kill regional Queensland and regional Australia. We're going to unpack that. We're going to also talk with Wayne Davis from the Brambadale Charolais, and they have put an offer forward for anybody who is wanting to purchase Charolais bulls. I would say this is one of the best offers you will have in opportunities in a long, long time. There's 120 Charolais bulls, 50 Charbray bulls, Kilkenny Charolais, World Camp Stud and MJ. But they are going to meet the market this year and do something that will no doubt get people back into the game of wanting to buy Charolais. We're going to talk a lot more as well um, about this Murray-Darling Basin. We're going to catch up also um, with the holder of the cup, Joe McGrath, the Melbourne Cup, the Lexus Melbourne Cup, and much, much more. This is Rural Queensland Today. You're with Ben Dobbin. It's Tuesday morning, the 11th of July. Let's get into it. David Littleproud joins us next. Tuesday morning, Rural Queensland Today, leader of the National Party is David Littleproud and he joins us this morning uh, for the first time um, since I've been back from a little break. David, good morning. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. Good to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, let's just start with a couple of things. Um, we're, we're going to talk very shortly um, with Andrew McConville, who is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority CEO. In, he, in essence... He's a puppet and a mouthpiece for Tanya Plibersek. Um, this Murray-Darling Basin review and water plan, which you were a part of in 2018, which you actually sorted out the hell of a mess that it was and got some understanding and some agreements from state to state, looks like it's about to be blown up again. Um, in, in essence, the government are scratching... Um, and trying to appease the Greens and the far left and the minorities, and in doing so, they are crippling rural towns with their buyback. Yeah, mate, look, the water wars were over, but they're about to begin because Tanya Plabersek uh, just wants to blow up everything that was done. And I've got to say, Tony Burke actually helped me uh, get some peace and harmony. What we did is that the Murray-Darling Basin plan is to recover 2,750 gigalitres. We've recovered 80%, a bit over 2,100, nearly 2,200 gigalitres of that. But one of the pieces of legislation that I was able to cut a deal with Tony Burke on was what we call the sustainable diversion limits. And that was a, that was allowing states to build water infrastructure to return water to the environment rather than buying it off farmers and taking it out of communities and actually stripping communities of their economic viability. So that was just a common sense way to recover the last part, the last 20% of the plan with infrastructure. The states all put projects up that could achieve that, that amount of water recovery that didn't come off farmers. Uh, we hit, we had COVID, uh, we had fires, we had drought, and the states haven't completed that work. And so what the states are saying is we need an extension. We need to be able to finish that infrastructure to be able to deliver that full 2750. But then there's another little kicker to this, and this is the big kicker that Queenslanders in particular should be really worried about. When Tony Burke put the legislation in 2012, the plan was 2750 gigalitres. 
what he did to get South Australia to agree to it all. He said, oh, they wanted more recovery of water. So he said, look, I'll, let's recover an additional 450 gigalitres. That's effectively about a Sydney harbour full of water. So what he said was, but to keep, so that the whole thing didn't blow up, he said, what we'll do for this, what, what isn't in place for the 2750, is we'll put a social and economic test. We'll say that you can't recover any of that additional 450 gigalitres unless you can prove a neutrality test that it hasn't impacted regional communities. When I was water minister, I got the states to agree to that neutrality test, even South Australia. I mean, it was akin to getting peace in the Middle East. South Australia signed up to the neutrality test. And what we've, since then, 2018, we've only recovered around two to three gigalitres of the 450 extra water because that neutrality test that Tony Burke wanted has protected regional communities. Tanya Plebisek is saying she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to respect that neutrality test anymore. She wants to blow that up, and what she wants to do is run around and buy up an additional 450 gigalitres. That means she's coming to a Murray-Darling Basin community near us, particularly places like St George, Deeran, Gundy, uh, Roma, uh, Dolby, uh, Warwick. Yeah. This is where they're coming after, and they will come in and buy. And I'm not worried about the farmers because see, the farmers get the money, and they will soft. It's the community. Oh, it's the community. A hundred percent. And the thing about it is, I doubt that. And I and I mean this in all seriousness. I doubt that Tanya Plibersek's been to many of these communities. She sits down well, in Canberra or or out of an electorate in Sydney, and with the tick of a pen and the appeasement of being seen as doing the right thing, is crippling the bush. And we've seen this for a long time, David. This is not the first time we've seen this kind of behaviour. We just didn't think it had happened as quickly as it has. Now, the concern is at the end point. Why, why all the states agreed under your watch, now they are all on board. I mean, it's a dictatorship. I mean, and we're seeing this um, with this yes vote and this campaign that's beginning now. There have been countless Indigenous leaders. There have been countless people who I hold in high regard, who believe that this is a fundamentally flawed referendum that is going to take place, yet they're pushing on. They don't care. They are pushing on. Now, I have never, ever seen anything that's going to divide our country more. I see other conflicts in the world, um, in other nations, and I pray that this does not create that because where we are heading is dangerous ground. Yeah, and the voice is already divided us. If the Prime Minister had taken a step back and taken our offer to just do something around constitutional recognition, a statement of fact, Indigenous Australians were here first. We've made mistakes, but we're better being together and better sticking together. A simple set of words that had no constitutional consequences legally for the country, then everyone, I think, would say, yeah, fair enough. But what he is doing with this voice thing, and, and in fact, I was in Orange and I'm in Bathurst today. I'm in fact looking over Mount Panorama as we speak. I, I met with Indigenous elders there who don't agree with it. They, they, have, they see no value in the voice. This is, all about, this is all about a few Indigenous elites that will benefit from this. They are very sceptical about this. They don't believe that this will shift the dial for them at all. All we need is we're spending $33 billion a year on Indigenous Australians. We just need to spend it better. We don't need another layer of bureaucracy to tell us how to spend it. We actually need to sit around the town halls and, and campfires in, in little communities talking to the elders who will tell you how uh, how things are and how you can fix it. 
rather than having bureaucrats and another liar bureaucracy. Uh, this is this is dividing our nation on race, and it shouldn't do that. That's, Australians are better than that. There is a key tenant to this country. All 26 million of us are equal, and we all have an equal voice through the parliament. There's 227 voices that we get through the Senate and the House of Representatives, and proudly our nation has elected 11 Indigenous Australians in this current parliament, not to represent just Indigenous Australians. They're there to represent all Australians. And so Anthony Albanese, who has been told on numerous occasions, you only have to look at the polls. We've just said, please, mate, take a deep breath, take a step back. You have divided this country. Do something, you'll unite it and, and work on a better bureaucracy, not a bigger one. That's common sense. And that's what we've had as Nats. We've led this debate for nine months. For nine months, we're the first ones to come out and my opposition bear on this. From our lived experience about how you can close a gap, and this is not how you close the gap. There is genuine intent and generosity from Australians to close the gap, not just in spirit, but in money to make sure that no one is left behind. And we can do it if, if we actually put our minds to it rather than actually getting a bureaucracy, adding another bureaucracy to the over 1,100 Indigenous reference groups that we've got already. Yeah, and, and the thing about it is that they're not mucking around. Um, they are determined to push on no matter at what cost. I just don't know whether or not we're going to get the result and and I don't know what happens. Look, to me at the moment, it, it, they're not going to get it through, but then what happens? What, what, well, what, what's, any- created, what's created, and I'm not talking from a political standpoint, but the hatred and the divide, that's the question. It, it, it's yeah. a no-win situation for me, um, and that's the concern. No, no, and and that's that's the concern that many Australians can see as many Australians are turning their mind to this and saying they can't support it, and they shouldn't be afraid not to support to, to say no to this thing. Um, it's not the right it's not the right proposition. But what we need and what you will get, particularly from me and the Nationals, is leadership. There will be no victory lap if this thing goes down. There'll be no victory lap. There'll be a mature conversation with the Prime Minister about re-engaging about what this should be about. And if it is about constitutional recognition that he wants to, to gain, then put it in its pure sense. And we'll work constructively with, with him and the government if that's the path they want to choose to take and, and, and turn their mind to. We will not be running around, and I think it's beholden on Peter Dutton as well, that if this goes down, we, we all as political leaders need to lead our nation in the direction that it should have been, in, in this, and it, but Australians shouldn't be guilted into voting for this because this is the wrong proposition. If it was just about constitutional recognition, then I think nearly all Australians would, would say, "Yeah, let's give that a go. That's fine. That's that has that's something that has real intent about about where we are as a nation and what we've achieved as a nation uh, in coming to and working together." Uh, yeah. But putting another layer of bureaucracy is not the right is not the right proposition, and Australians should not feel guilted to vote no. But know that there will be political leadership after this. There is there is a vacuum that will need to be filled, and I intend to make sure that anyone in my party room that runs off and tries to take a victory, victory lap will be pulled in real quick, because this is a, will be a time of leadership and maturity, and that's what the nationals will give, and that's what we've given since we gave our position nine months ago. You've never seen any of us yelling and screaming, calling anyone names. I've been called plenty, but I don't care. I wasn't going to engage in that. We've kept our tone right. We've been respectful to the Australian people. This is the wrong proposition. If it was constitutional recognition, we're in, but the voice, we're out. Yeah, well said. We're going to take a break. David Littleproud joining us this morning on Rural Queensland today. 
Welcome back to Rural Queensland today. David Littleproud, our guest this morning um, on Tuesday morning, the 11th of July. David, um, the National Rural Health Strategy. Um, now, the National Rural Health Alliance is pushing for a National Rural Health Strategy with standards that would hold politicians accountable, similar to bridging the gap targets. Now, there is no two ways about it, you, and you and I both live regionally, that if you live in the regions you're in a disadvantage from a health perspective. And that's because the state governments um, and all state governments have been um, guilty of this, have turned their back on the, the regions. We need the federal government and a national health strategy to come in place. Realistically, is that, is that, a, is that a realistic thing that could happen? Yes. Uh, and in fact, where the nationals are working on that as we speak, uh, my shadow regional health minister, Anne Webster, uh, had a forum about two or three months ago, and Professor Nick Coatesworth, former uh, Deputy Chief Health Commi- uh, Officer of Australia, uh, chaired that meeting for us. There was over 100 regional health professionals that came to Mildura, sat down and worked out what are the four or five top priorities that we as a federal government should be focused on and how we would, we would implement them. So we're working through that policy setting, and I can assure you that the nationals will be going to the next federal election with regional health as one of its key priorities. Um, we will be focusing uh, very heavily on regional health. We can see the deterioration, and it is now time for governments of all persuasions and at all levels to inject themselves into this and to make sure uh, that we have a cogent strategy moving forward. And that, that invariably uh, involves around our most important uh, asset, which is our human capital, and making sure that we're training our people, educating our people, in the, in the regions, because we know that if you do that, invariably about 40% of them will stay uh, and work once they're trained. Uh, and it's about making sure that there's incentives for them to be in the regions and remote areas in particular. So we're working through those things with what Dr. Catesworth or Professor Catesworth actually pull, pulled together with all these regional health professionals. And so the nationals are committed to that. And we're saying to the government, please, uh, you shouldn't. we shouldn't have to wait an election, you should look at what we've put forward and you should start to adopt this now. But for the state governments, I mean, they have a responsibility to make sure where they have a hospital, they have a doctor in it. We've got some communities that have been without because they simply aren't, aren't providing those those doctors and resources to the regions. Yeah. And I think in, invariably when you see the big surplus and particularly a state government that has the largest royalty tax in the world and yet regional services and regional infrastructures deteriorate in Anastasia Palaszczuk. Yeah. It just goes to show they are just ripping everything they can oh, out of the region. It's embarrassing. And sending it all to the city. It's embarrassing. And that just leads me quickly. Um, the call by Peter Dutton um, for nuclear power in Australia saying the the small modular reactors that could be built on sites of coal-fired power stations such as the decommissioned Little Liddell Power Station in New South Wales, that makes so much sense. Now, Yourself, Matt Canavan, Barnaby, all of you for a long, long time. I mean, this is well, well done to Peter Dutton now, but I mean, since this show has been in its infancy and since it started in 2016, we've seen these calls for that. We're going to run out of energy and we're going to get cold and we're going to have to be paying more uh, money for electricity than we've ever paid before. And this is a solution that is safe, is being used around the world why the pushback? 
Uh, well, Labor just have an ideological view because the left of their party don't believe in nuclear energy. And and the Nats have been on this. The Nationals have wanted this for over a decade. And it did take Peter Dutton's leadership to get the Liberals there. And everyone said, well, why didn't you do it when you were in government? Well, we couldn't because half of the Liberal Party weren't in favour of it. But Peter Dutton's brought them to this juncture where they've seen common sense. And we are going to pay for, for the reckless race that this government's got to 82% renewables by 2030. Now, just put that in perspective. Today, we sit around 26%. So they're going to get to 82% by 2030. Jeez. That's 22,000 panels laid every day between now and 2030. Not going to happen. Get to that target. Not going to happen. It's not. Well, but, but Dobbo, this is the problem I've got, is that if it, it, the, the only way they can see it happening is by taking up prime agricultural land and knocking down remnant vegetation across our country. And then to plug it in, they've got to put 28,000 28, kilometres of new transmission lines to plug it all in. Now, that comes at a cost that you got to pay. If you look at your energy bill now, half is, is nearly poles and wires. So you've got to pay for that extra $80 billion in 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines. And I'm probably being generous on the, on the $80 billion side. So what we've said is we've got sovereignty of all our resources. Why wouldn't we use particularly things like uranium with new emerging zero emissions technology, small scale modular, where you can put in where existing coal-fired power stations are, you can plug them in and you don't need the transmission lines then. You can simply use the existing transmission lines. But I'm not against renewables, but if you want renewables, particularly solar panels, Solar panels should be on people's roofs, not on prime agricultural land and knocking down remnant vegetation that farmers can't touch. They should be concentrated in the capital cities where the energy is required. And if you put them on people's in cities' rooftops, lo and behold, you also wouldn't need the transmission line because that's where the concentration of energy is. And wind towers, quite frankly, should, should be offshore away from the Great Barrier Reef uh, because, again... We are having to plug all these things and you're going to have to pay for it. This is where ideology is not meeting the practical reality of what's coming out of people's wallets. And the Albanese government and Chris Bowen is taking us on this reckless path that you're all paying for. First of July, your energy bill just went up another 25%, thanks Chris Bowen, Anthony Albanese. And so too is your food prices are going up because your food processors are paying sometimes three, sometimes four times more than what they were 12 months ago to put the food through to get it onto a plate uh, and on the supermarket. And this is the insanity when we have we have sovereignty of all resources. Why don't we just let it all, let the market decide and let's look at the technology that can give us that therming energy. Renewables can't even do it all, even if they get to 82%. You're still going to need therming. You're still going to need gas. You're still going to need some coal and you're going to need some small scale modular nuclear. And these are the types of solutions that we shouldn't be afraid to turn our mind to. We've had a nuclear energy here for 70 years. Just so everyone knows, in Lucas Height, he's been here for 70 years. Yeah. And everyone thinks, oh, I'm not in my backyard. Just so people know, there are homes less than a kilometre away from the reactor at Lucas Heights. They are selling for $1.3 million. Yeah, yeah. So the people, people at Lucas aren't Heights stupid. Aren't people aren't yeah. stupid, David. Appreciate yeah. your people time, mate. Uh, one thing Good I just on I will say this. Everything we talk about, and I don't like being negative because we love this great country, but people need to make up their mind. This is the mob that you voted in. And this is the mob next year from a state perspective and the following year from a federal perspective that you can vote out. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Appreciate your time. David Littleproud, thanks so much for being back with us. Thanks for having me, mate. Good on you. We're going to take a break. This is Rural Queensland today. And as I said earlier, we will have, um, and this will be interesting, not far away, Andrew uh, McConville, who is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority CEO. He'll be joining us this morning as well. This is Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network.
Welcome back to Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. It's Tuesday morning, the 11th of July. And on Friday, the 28th of July at 10am at the Waluga Sale Yards, the annual Brambadale Charolais bull sale will take place. Now, that's in, this is in conjunction with Kilkenny Charolais, World Camp Start and MJ Charbrays. A total of 120 Charolais bulls and 50 Charbray bulls will be on offer. I mean, that's as big an offering as you'll get. Wayne Davis is the stud principal of Brambadale. Um, you can go to brambadale.com.au to have a look at the catalogue and the website. He joins us this morning. G'day, Wayne. How are you, mate? Yeah, good morning, Bobo. Yeah, great to talk to you. And um, I understand just how passionate you are about the Charolais and Charbray breed, but your, your stud, the Brambadale Charolais, you'll be offering... 50 of those 120 Charolais bulls um, in conjunction, obviously, with Kilkenny Charolais and, and World Camp Start and the MJ Charbrays. This is an unbelievable offering of quality bulls at the Waluga Sale Yards. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we had our bulls scanned yesterday and, you know, I'm very proud of the, um, the eye muscle area and the, and the weight to their age and, um, and the IMF is, uh, is very good again this year. So, you know, we believe in, I believe we're breeding bulls that suit the commercial operations down to the T. The extra weight that these cattle are putting into their wieners and their 100 day export cattle, the Charolais Charbo cattle, and, you know, we don't need to keep talking about it, but they're doing a very good job in the industry. The, the thing about your bulls, mate, is they go and work. When people walk into Waluga Sayards, um, what they do know is that these bulls have been prepared right. They've been treated for Pestigard, 7-in-1, Vibrio. They've had the three-germ blood, the three-day vaccine. They're scanned. They're tested. They've all passed the semen test. But all that aside, you, you, you've been absolutely thorough with that. But these bulls will go out and they'll get your calves. And that's been the biggest thing about Barambadale and, and this sale the, every year, you know, like the Charolais, the Charolais breed is an exceptional breed, but your bulls are bred to work. Yeah, well, it's it's something that Kilkenny and Brambadale, um, all studs involved, we do try to keep it a very commercially focused sale. Yep. And, you know, we most of our bulls go back into ticky country and you do have to prepare them to go back into those drier, hilly country and, um, and, and, and do the job. Shepherdson and Boyd, Sullivan Livestock and Rural Services, plus Auction Plus is where you'll be able to talk to um, from an agent perspective. Well, Lucas Sayards, 10 a.m. Now, there's free transport to major centres. T's and C's apply as usual. Um, but these bulls have all been, you know, prepared properly. Um, they've been at the bull depot on a pellet completely designed for bulls. They've had access to as much oat and hay as you can possibly get to. So... It, it is time and time again. What would you say about this this herd of bulls? I mean, you, you're not going to be trying to bust the market. You realise there's pressure on the beef industry. So the upstart, am I right in saying, um, has been clipped a bit. So, you know, the start price for anybody wanting to buy a bull this year through this sale is $4,000. Yeah, well, we've had a meeting and, you know, we're probably going to meet the market this year and um, people have, People are taking a thousand dollars less for their wieners, and um, you know they're going to want to buy bulls a bit cheaper. So there's a bull there for everyone, you know, from the very best to the you know to the to the bottom end. There's, there's bulls there for everybody, and um, 
and we have put an upset price of four thousand this year to, to but, try to get people into a better bull. If they want to upgrade into a better bull, um, this this might be the year to do it. I think that speaks volume. You guys are cattlemen. You understand it, and you you get the market. You commercial you commercial operators, so you understand the pain and the stress that's happened in the last six months. And look. You ride the Wayne. You've been with the highs and you've been with the lows in this industry. So the fact is that if people can come there, they've still got a bit of money in their pocket and they can get into a better bull for that, and they can see there's an opportunity. That is a huge shot in the arm for a breed that is very hard in a lot of areas to get into because of just how popular and the job they're doing. So to have an upstart of that, that speaks volumes of what this sale will be. Friday, the twenty eighth of July, ten a.m. start. The Waluga Sale Yards is the Barambadale Annual Charolais Sale. Now, there will be, obviously in conjunction um, with the Kilkenny Charolais Stud, World Camp Stud and MJ Charbrays, 120 Charolais Bulls, 50 Charbrays Bulls on offer. You can go and have a look at them, brambadale.com.au and forward slash bull sale. You can see them all there. All bulls, and I'm going to say this again, Pestiguard 7-in-1 vaccine, Vibrio 3 germ, 3-day, they're ready to go to set up. They're scanned, the weights are there, and they've all passed their semen test. I mean, you don't, what you know, you know, the bulls are there. They stand behind them. The upstart's 4,000, and this is the place to start. You want to get in and get good bulls, this is the place to go to. Um, and Wayne Davis has had more success than most from a commercial perspective, and that's what we're about. You're about putting bulls out there and getting calves, and that's what Barambadar will do. Wayne, best of luck for it. I'm going to talk to you again before the sale, but. It's a couple of weeks away. Best of luck for it. I know you work hard for this and it's an important part of your business. And I think the fact that you've taken a clip on the upstart and said, listen, we, we understand that we want people to get in and buy a bull uh, speaks volumes of the commercial operation that the four studs operate and how they see themselves positioned in the market. So thank you and, and best of luck for the 28th of July. Thank you. Good on you. Wayne Davis, Brambadale Stud and Charolais Stud. I'll tell you what, what a leading stud they are. This is Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. I have spoken uh, to this gentleman before. Joe McGrath is the Lexus Cup Melbourne Tour Manager for Victoria Racing Club. And the Lexus Cup uh, Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup will tour six countries and 41 destinations this year. It's the 21st Lexus Cup Tour, Melbourne Tour. Uh, I just love it. I love the Melbourne Cup. I love everything that's about it. It's an 18-karat gold, recently valued at 600000 And I just love that people throughout regional Queensland and throughout Australia get to have a look at it. Joe, good morning. Joe McGrath from uh, Victoria Racing Club joins us this morning. Hello, Joe. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thanks, Ben. How are you going there? Wonderful. Um, I mean, a lot of jobs in life, you, you go, well, gee whiz, I'm, I've done it pretty well. But, mate, to go around six countries, you know, all of Australia, the greatest country in the world, and see the delight that this would bring to people, what a pretty rewarding job, I suspect. <laughs> oh, absolutely, Ben. It's uh, It's been a privilege to, to be involved and, and be keeper of the cup, as they call it. But uh, it is connected with... Um, a broader program, which is the Lexus Melbourne Cup Tour, as you've uh, alluded to, and uh, it's in its 21st year this year and seems to be uh, getting bigger by the year, which is great. We had, obviously, a, 
an impediment. Um, sure. A couple of years back, obviously with the uh, with COVID, but we're back out full force and uh, we're uh, out on the road as we speak in South Australia, but um, heading towards Queensland later this week. What makes it? What makes it so special? I mean, wh- why is it of all cups? Uh, and I look at this, and I know other people have tried, and and you know, Peter Volandi just tried to make the Everest this thing in New South Wales, but nothing, nothing will ever come close to the Melbourne Cup. Why is that? Uh, well, it's, I, I think as you work very closely with it, Ben, and it's fairly straightforward to me in that. It's a cultural icon in this country. I mean, it, it dates back to the uh, the gold gold rush of the 1860s, the first race, the first uh, Melbourne Cup run in 1861, and won by Archer. And uh, you know, it survived uh, depressions, recessions, great depressions of the 1930s, two world wars, World War One, World War Two, and it, it, it you know the the spirit that it brought to troops overseas in that period of time is well documented it's it's been through floods droughts you know pandemics as we know and it's i suppose it's part of our cultural fabric and yeah. and our, our cultural identity that the melbourne cup i've often said you know like um you know melbourne cup's always first tuesday of november you'd be a brave administrator to move it to the the last saturday and whenever um just because you thought it was a good idea i mean it, it's it's part of Australian folklore, and when you throw in the Maccabi Divas, Bar oh coming, yeah. uh, Far Lap in 1930, the whole, all of it, and I suppose that's what the tour is about. It's it's about taking this, you know, one of the most sought after and most famous sporting trophies in the world out to community, but also the stories that are connected with the race, and I think, uh, you know, that's that's why I think it's. Uh, it's highly valued, and and uh, as I've said to people, because we value it so highly in Australia, others around the world want to win it. Yeah, I, I, and I love that. Um, interesting, and I and I, you're going to be in Bullia this weekend, home of the Melbourne Cup of camel racing. The Bullia camel races are on this weekend. Yep, and I love that one G boss is going to be there along with the Melbourne Cup. You talk about that. He's relocated back to Queensland. Bossy, I saw him only a couple of weeks ago, um, and he's going to be a special guest at the at the Bullia Camel Races. I, I I have to ask this, Joe. I mean, have you ever been to the Bullia Camel Races? Is this your well, first time? Uh, well, I'm not going on this leg of the, the the tour, Ben, but I have been to Bullia once before, and uh, but I not the actual Camel Race meeting, and and they say that the the Camel Cup at Bullia is is the Melbourne Cup of Camel racing. Yeah, if, that's if correct. That makes, yeah, that no, makes no, that sense. makes sense. One hundred percent. So I think there's a, a good fit there somewhere. But um, I look, you know, and that's and that's how we, you know, we sort of plan it. We we take submissions at the t- the start of the year, and and then it, it, you know, we look at what the applications are. I mean, of course, after Bulia, we're heading to Mount Isa, and it's the hundred year anniversary of uh, of since when uh, Mount Isa started. So, you know. They've been planning that and, and, you know, been on to us for about 15, 16 months to get the cup there. So it's been in that good sort of fit and good tie-in uh, from a timing point of view. Um, and um, on that basis, Boya uh, became very attractive. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and look, obviously this weekend, it, you're in Billy the 15th. 16th to 18th Mount Isa, it's celebrating 100 years. I think it's fitting there. 
Uh, September yep. the 1st to the 3rd, you're Gold Coast, and obviously on the 4th um, in Brisbane, then you're up in Cairns, and then you head back west to Thargaminda and Cunnamulla, September 18 and 19. Now, countries that this has been taken to, the Melbourne Cup or, or the Lexus Melbourne Cup, um, Japan, New Zealand, Ireland, France, Hong Kong, UK, Please tell me, Joe, you get to go to a few of these places with this car. Please tell me, like, <laughs> oh, I, mean, I mean, I understand you're not going to bull your camel races. Uh, you know, you uh, can be. You can be I, you, I am, yeah, yes, I am. I am very fortunate that I will go to one or two, and I and only recently came back from um, New Zealand, which uh, we went to a place called Cambridge, which is about an hour and forty-five minutes south of Auckland, and that's it's an epicenter for horse breeding in New Zealand, and fourteen. Melbourne Cup winners have been bred in Cambridge alone. Is which that is, right? I never knew that. It's a staggering, staggering amount of um, Melbourne Cup winners coming from one particular area. And one, one stud that we went to, Trelawney, had seven of those 14 came off the property. And it's, which is, uh, it's an extraordinary um, statistic. But, you know, you're sort of, yeah, fortunate to go around and, and, and see these places. But what it, you know, and what the cup means. And I suppose in New Zealand, that's an interesting study in itself because 44 of the 162 Melbourne Cup winners have actually been bred in New Zealand. And that includes Farlap and Carbine, two of the greatest cup winners of all time. So it's, um, they take a, a particular ownership and that they've got a lot of skin in the game, so to speak. And uh, when you go through those communities, they, you know, you, you, it's not a hard sell, put it that way. They, they are as into, uh, um, into, into the Melbourne Cup as, you know, anyone in Queensland, New South Wales or anywhere else. So it's, it, it's quite interesting. But, you know, it's also this year, 30-year anniversary of, of, of uh, Vintage Crop winning the Melbourne Cup, the first fly-in, fly-out Melbourne Cup winner from Europe uh, back in 1993. And, and we'll go. We'll take the cup back there, and that's a different sort of focus. But they're they're all over the cup as well. I mean, oh, it's, just, it's, it's the not, greatest it's, race. One of the. I mean, it's up there with every. I mean, we we just saw Royal Ascot recently, and we saw all the racing there. I, I think the Melbourne Cup um, is as equal. I think you know it has the prestige. It, it could be the most prestigious race to me, um, who loves racing in the world. And I know Joe, it's. Your bread and butter, um, and the Victoria Racing Club do a fantastic job of not only sharing this experience but educating the next generation of kids. Mount Isa, Bullia, um, over the next couple of days, and then obviously yeah. in September you're in the Gold Coast, Brisbane, and and uh, Cairns, and then Thargaminda and Cunnamulla, September 18, 19. Yeah. Uh, awesome, uh, Joe McGrath. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, and and congratulations, and also thank you for for honouring what is a prestigious race by giving everybody an opportunity. And that's the big thing. People, people like, I mean, I've never seen the Melbourne Cup in person. And that, that's something I'd love to see. Love to hold. Like, it's just a wonderful, wonderful yeah. initiative. Well, it is. It is and, and it is something, Ben, as you travel around and that you, you get to experience, as you work very closely with it, but every now and again you get that experience of what it, it hits you straight back at you, that what it actually means to... Uh, different communities, and and that's you know part of the tour is going out and engaging with different communities. And I, I'm staggered. And you just touched on young kids around the country, the number that can put up their hand at age six, seven, or eight, or something, and say, Farlap 
I don't know how they know about Farlap at that age, but um, they all know about it. So it's it's it is quite, and that could be any corner of the country. So it's it's it is a privilege to be involved, and certainly as the cup um, travels around, we we encourage people to on all the social media channel, uh, channels, uh, in in particular at Melbourne Cup uh, on on Twitter. I certainly recommend anyone to follow our progress and um, look forward to seeing people. At, at uh, Flemington on the first Tuesday in November. I love it. Um, Joe McGrath uh, from the Lexus Melbourne Cup Tour Manager for the Victoria Racing Club. Appreciate your time this morning and thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Ben. Good on you. We'll take a break, come back with more. This is Rural Queensland Today. You're with Ben Dobbin across the Resonate Broadcast Network. Welcome back to Rural Queensland Today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. You're with Ben Dobbin. It's the 11th of July, a Tuesday morning, across rural and regional Queensland. Andrew McConville is the Murray-Darling Basin Authority CEO, and he joins me this morning with the Federal Labor Government committed to delivering the Basin Plan in full by 2024. Good morning, uh, Andrew. How are you, mate? I really appreciate you uh, making yourself available. This is obviously... A testy subject and one that, you know, we need some explaining and some understanding with. But thank you so much for making yourself available this morning. Pleasure, Ben. No problem at all. Uh, we understand back in 2018, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, with under David Littleproud, we looked like we got most of this plan in place. 2,750, um, 2,750 um, gigalitres back, back, and the buyback got to 2,100. We, in Queensland, we're pretty much there. And now things, it was the basis of that the state building infrastructure to get that final target of 2750 over the line. Why has there been a shift in plan now um, that we are walking away from it and not giving the states time to get this infrastructure in place? Ben, there hasn't been... uh a completion of the plan, unfortunately. Um, no, but that's going to right. take some time. That's going to take some time. Yeah. We, we understood that. Like the, the state yeah. building infrastructure is going to take time. I, I, I just don't understand why we're not staying on that plan. Yeah, so under the under the plan, it was 2,100. It, it gets a little bit complex, but I'll, I'll try and run through it sort of in, in simple numbers. So 2,100 or slightly more, uh, 2,100 thereabouts was to be recovered under what's called bridging the gap. Uh, and that is very, very close. There was a recent uh, tender process, 49 gigalitres, uh, that the government released. With the completion of that tender, uh, that would bridge the gap. So that's component one. The second component is 605 gigalitres uh, of water that the states committed to undertaking a series of infrastructure projects um, to to recover 600, well, not to recover, to keep 605 gigalitres of water in the consumptive pool. So a bit like the buying on credit card, if you like. That was the credit that was given and the infrastructure payments are sure. uh, the, re, the repayment of that debt. Now, the states, uh, we as the MDBA, our job is to do a reconciliation of uh, those projects. And we've been flagging for several years um, that there's going to be a shortfall there. And uh, last last November, I came out and uh, and gave the first actual gigalitre in, uh, indication of that. And the shortfall there is going to be somewhere between 190 and 315 gigalitres. Um, now, we're required at 30th of June 24 
to do a reconciliation. That's the timeline that's under the Act uh, and the Basin Plan at the moment. So that's the second component. So there's a shortfall uh, there, and we will um, soon release a, a further assurance report where we'll, we'll do another estimate of, of that. And then the final component was a uh, what's called an environmental efficiency water, uh, which was for the Commonwealth uh, to look to recover, and that was 450 gigalitres uh, of water. So the total being 3,200 gigalitres. At the moment, only 26 gigalitres of uh, that water has been uh, recovered. So, and that you know, there's a bit of debate then around that. Well, yeah. Can I can I just yeah. stop you yeah. there? I mean, the the reason that 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 only that small percentage has been recovered is because of and Tony Burke was a part of this. I remember interviewing him a part of the. I remember Tony Burke involved in these discussions, and when he was he was in the opposition. This so-called mm-hmm. social economic neutrality test, where you know you're going to see communities go down in flames if you take this water back. Now, that was part of it, and that's one of the reasons why this extra 450 wasn't taken. I'm just understanding I, – I, I'm, and I, I say this with the deepest respect – I just don't understand why that hasn't been factored in. I mean, these regional communities are on their knees as it is. So you take that from them. It's not the farmers that are going to suffer here. We know that they're going to grow their crops, but it's the communities – St George, Gundawindi, we know them. I'm talking from a Queensland perspective here. Theodore, these kind of towns, Emerald, you take it back, we've got real dramas. Yeah, look, Ben, and, and I know those communities well, spent a lot of time out there growing up and, and understand fully. And you're right, the 450, there's, there's two requirements there. They're under the under the basin plan, uh, it, uh, it it's a requirement that the recovery of that water have neutral or positive socioeconomic uh, impact and that's that's in the basin plan and so the water that's been recovered um, uh, has been recovered on that basis at 26 or thereabouts um, and and there's nothing changed in relation to to that requirement that requirement is 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 still there now the the current government uh, came in with an election commitment to uh, recover the basin plan in full but you know that that in full is is in accordance with with the requirements uh, that are there, and just recently, the government came out uh, and uh, put a, a, I suppose, a request for for um, ideas out there as to how uh, you know that remaining 450 gigalitres of, of environmental water uh, could be recovered, and there are a range of you know ideas out there, and the government will receive those and, and, and look at those and. Uh, the the minister Tanya Plibersek has said that all options are on the table when it when it comes to the recovery uh, of of that water. So that's that's sort of where the government sits at the moment. And our task as the MDBA is to obviously then look at you know, all of those options and, and what does that mean in terms of the overall uh, recovery task. Andrew, you, you're a highly educated human being, and throw in the fact that you're a bushy and you you know in it as well. You know the challenges, right? It, Oh, are you, are, yeah, are you? Yeah, it, and I, and I want to just say this: it seems outside looking in that you you're taking direction from Tanya Plibersek. Surely, you know, and I mean this: the MDBA are their own voice. I understand they're a government, you know, part of it. But your private sector thinking and your mindset from where you've been in your past, and you're very well known. Surely that you can see that there are some things there. And there are some agendas with the Labor government that are coming from other areas um, and trying to tick some boxes because not all of this passed the pub test. 
Yeah, but look, I'm I'm an independent statutory authority, and you're right. I spent 30 years in, in the private sector, and most of that in in agriculture, some of it in uh, you know the oil and gas sector. So I understand rural and regional Australia really well, and you know I know absolutely the challenge that water recovery presents. One of the one of the challenges we face is that you know within uh, you know the next three decades, according to to CSIRO, their best sure. estimate is that we'll have 10% reduced uh, rainfall and about 30% reduced uh, inflows into the basin. So yeah, it's it's really tough, and I completely understand you know, the concerns, the fears of, of rural and regional communities uh, around you know ongoing water recovery. It's also important to say that uh, you know for every Every uh, person that says to me a concern about uh, water recovery, I get the other side of it as well, Ben, in terms of people who want to see more water recovered um, for the basin. Now, what, why? Can said, you tell me why? Why, why do we like? Why are yeah. we not getting enough? And, and talk to me from yeah. a perspective yeah, sure. where I see it flow down, and I've seen it this year in flood three times. I, I, tell me why we need more, and why it needs to be recovered. So when when the basin plan was was um, developed off the you know at the end of the millennium drought. I mean, you know, the basin was yeah. in serious decline, and the, and then the health of the river, all of its major indicators, salinity, uh, connectivity, um, you know, flows to to the mouth of the Murray, and and you know, it's important to remember that the river rots from its head, so there's yep. a lot of uh, connectivity is extremely important quality of water and the like. So, the basin plan, you know, its task and the task of the MDBA was to sit down and determine you know, what was an environmentally sustainable level of take whereby uh, you know, there was enough water for uh, communities. And, and one of the things that the Basin Plan does for the first time is it actually provides water for critical human needs. That didn't exist before the Basin Plan. Um, so water for critical human needs, water for industry and agriculture, um, and, and water for the environment. And it's it's a balancing act, there's no doubt. And you know we... we as the MDBA needed to look at that and determine what was an environmentally sustainable take uh, on the best available science, and that uh, that level was was 3,200 back in in, in uh, 2012. We have an opportunity to review the basin plan uh, in three years' time in 2026, and we've kicked that process off uh, already. And as part of that process of a review, we'll also be looking at you know, uh, levels of take and, and what's sustainable there in the same way that we'll be looking at. Know, climate change and the adaptability of climate change. So it's important that we take the opportunity to to review. Yeah. Um, but it's important that we're also you know, trying to. It, it's it's a balancing act, Ben, and it's important that we continue to try and do that. And you know, it's it's the most wicked problem I've ever had to to face. And and you know, I get it every day from from all sides. And for every every time you're trying to address one challenge, you you create another. It's a bit like playing whack-a-mole. Yeah. Um, so what's you know, the solution? It, it, I mean, other than taking and yeah. and, and look, oh, oh, you know who I'm representing. It, it's yeah, as yeah, clear as clear. Um, so, and, and and you've you've cut your teeth in that part of the world. So you understand yep. the concerns of regional Queenslanders because all they mm. see is they mm. see a, a, a corporation taking – Water for towns that are going to go backwards because they thrive on water, and so they understand that. So, but there is certainly there is an environmental um, issue to this, and I understand that. But all all roads lead to improvement over the last four years. So we've seen. So why why continue to have to push? Why why this extra four fifty? Why can't we give the state governments the time to get the infrastructure? We understand what's gone on the last. It's easy to say, oh, well, they've had the chance. Why can't we give them time? Yeah. Let's give well, them the think, time. 
A couple of pieces there, Ben, and, and certainly that's a, a, a topic of discussion between the states and, and the Commonwealth now in terms of you know the time needed to complete those those projects. And the states have, have, have previously put forward their views of wanting more time, and that's an that's an active topic of discussion between the states and the Commonwealth. And that's not something I get involved in. That's, no, that's no, a policy no, matter yep. for them. Um, so you know that's a that's a topic of active active discussion. I think. You know, from from where we sit, it is about looking at well, how can we continue to improve uh, the efficiency with which we use water? You know, listening yesterday in the cotton, you know, CRC. I mean, you know, what's happened there in in the, in the cotton industry with the improvement in water use efficiency of, of greater than fifty percent? Uh, you know, what we're looking at, you know, how do we reduce evaporation off uh, open channels and and, and storages? Uh, you know, what other on-farm efficiency measures are there available? Uh, as you say, what infrastructure projects are available? You know, where can we look at um, you know, rule changes that might um, uh, allow us to, to recover more more water in a, in a in a different way? So, looking at you know, persistent underuse or, or over delivery. These are the sorts of questions that the government is considering now, and that was why um, you know, the federal government put out a call for ideas as to how to recover. Uh, you know the remaining water for for this basin plan. So, and, and there are lots of ideas out there, and it's it's really important that they come forward. And and then our job as the MDBA is we assess those in terms of you know what they will do. We need to model them, look at them, and say, well, what will they deliver in the context of the basin plan? So, um, you know, one of the important things that we've got to recognise, and and I probably should have said this up front, is you know the significant heavy lifting that, as you pointed out, Ben, the basin communities have done in terms of the predominance of recovery, and that's that's incredibly significant, and uh, you know we need to to recognise and applaud and thank the irrigation communities for the heavy lifting that they've done yeah. as part of achieving the basin plan. What we've got to continue to do is really try and work together to say, well, are there other solutions? Because if we continue, uh, if we sort of stop stop now in terms of where we are, and this is a dynamic system, obviously, you know, in 30 years' time we could well back be back to where we were before the basin plan, given the impacts of climate change. So we've got to continue to do more, and that means everyone. That means uh, you know, towns, it means irrigators, it means the environment. Um, all the stakeholders are going to have to look at ways to, to use water better. And on the environmental water piece, we're, we're much better at using, when I say we're the Commonwealth Environment Water Holder, um, the science behind it, much better at using environmental water now than we were when the basin plan was put in place in 2012. So therein lies, I suppose, one of the positives that comes out of this is the opportunity of the basin plan review to say, okay, well, what does that look like and what does the basin plan need to look like going forward um, to, to you know, meet those trade-offs? You know, how do we deal First Nations in a, in a better way? These are all questions that we're going to be asking as part of the basin plan review. So I do think that that presents a, a positive and important opportunity to question what have we got to do? Well, let's so wait till the review what's, comes what's in. Worked, what yeah. hasn't. Yeah, yeah, once this yeah. review comes in, obviously. Look, it's very murky, and I understand you're doing it. And it's a tough going. I appreciate you standing up today and coming on. Um, any, it, any it's, very easy, it's very easy to duck and weave when these kind of – Yeah, I mean that seriously. And, and, mate, you were more than happy to come on the show. I appreciate it a lot. Um, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Andrew McConville, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority CEO. Um, and, look, it is a murky area at the moment. They're trying to get it sorted. Appreciate your time, Andrew. We'll talk again. Pleasure, Ben. Good on you. Rural Queensland today on the Resonate Broadcast Network. We'll take a break. Come back with more. 
Well, that's it from us here this morning at Rural Queensland today on this Tuesday morning, the 11th of July. I hope you've had a great day uh, and have an even better one. Um, I've loved giving you the last hour of radio. We're back tomorrow morning. It's Origin Day. I will be in Sydney for the State of Origin, so we'll be broadcasting from Sydney tomorrow uh, ahead of Game 3 of the State of Origin, and I know that we all want that clean sweep. So much to get through. Ray Hadley joins you next. Have a great day. And remember, when the weed is ripe, keep the headers rolling in the paddock. We'll be back tomorrow morning from 9am on Rural Queensland Today with Ben Dobbin. Till next time, stay safe on the roads. It's bye for now.